According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We once again find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 13. Join me there, if you would, in Hebrews 13. As we have uh, been dealing with verses 9 through 14. Last week we discussed going out to Him in verses 13 and 14. So let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. What is our mindset? Are we, as our mindset uh, in our priesthood, the mindset of the uh, staying in the camp, staying in the tabernacle, staying in the Holy of Holies, uh, being uh, washed and clean and, 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 and all that? Or are we willing to bear the shame? Are we willing to pick up the cross and follow Him to go outside the camp? And uh, such service requires cleansing, but good news, we have a cleansing procedure. And so as we suffer outside the camp and all the suffering and all the cleansing that's necessary, God has made the provision and we can appreciate that. This all uh, happens as we keep our eyes fixed on Him. Verse 14 says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And yes, we are, day by day, moment by moment. And sadly, uh, the trumpet did not come last night, and so we were disappointed to have one more day today. But we're going to redeem this day for the glory of Jesus Christ, and uh, we will set aside our disappointment for His good pleasure. The Father is very well pleased to, to, uh, to delay He's not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, desiring for no one to to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this is a day uh, that He has made, and we we do indeed rejoice in it. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together to receive instruction. We're thankful, Father, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. We are so hungry. uh, We desire to be fed. Uh, It's through the feasting upon your word that we are nourished. It is also, uh, this is the equipping of the saints. Father, we're here to, uh, to be equipped. And Father, we realize that there is a work of service to be done, and uh, we are your instruments in accomplishing all your good pleasure. So, Father, on this day, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so today I want to cover verses 15 and 16 and discuss our own priestly service. I was glad that we spent the time in the last couple of Sundays to look back to Leviticus and to see some procedures there. Um, you might recall there was a lot of uh, dead animals, there was a lot of blood, there was, uh, there was uh, entrails, <laughs> gore, it was, uh, it was pretty nasty. And uh, is there anybody today that wants to go back to that? Is that uh, something that interests you? Well, good, because uh, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And uh, we, want, we want to understand where we are biblically. We need to understand the purpose for the animal ritual, the purpose for the messages as they were given and as the animal ritual taught, but then to show the fulfillment of all these things in the death of our Savior on the cross. 
we don't we did not do away with animal ritual because it was old fashioned or primitive or we be, we became modern or society grew up or any of the the, the garbage they all hear from uh, from the world today none of that the animal ritual stopped because it was fulfilled in Christ and we have new ritual in the church age by the way animal ritual is coming back there will be animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And there's a reason for that. Why does it get restored in the millennium? And what additional doctrine needs to be taught through the, the uh, priesthood of Aaron that did not get taught in the first advent of Jesus Christ? So there will be more animal ritual in the future. And that's uh, something that some folks don't, uh, don't pay attention to. All right, but now looking at Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Let's take a look at this. So we left off with let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And then it says in verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And we, and this is, uh, this grabs our attention right away because we want to say, well, wait a minute. I thought we had left the camp. We have left the camp. And this is a big difference between Old Testament and New Testament, between Israel's temple worship and the church's temple worship. This comes to the issue of the fact that we don't have a set place whereby we must go in order to offer a sacrifice. In fact, wherever we go, we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. So these principles are very true for the church age that could not possibly have uh, been understood by the, uh, the Old Testament saints. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So no dead animals, you know, no dead goat, sheep, uh, turtle dove, bull, ram, any of that. The, the dead animals are over and done with. We now have the living sacrifice of the body of Christ in the church, and it starts with praise. It starts with praise. That's why I selected praise him, praise him as our opening hymn this morning. Praise Him, praise Him. This is the fruit of lips. And uh, we all can do it. We all can offer up praise in, in singing, in speaking, in conversation, in testimony, in the witness that we bear. Our witness is a witness of praise as we name the name of Christ and uh, celebrate what He has done. Great is the Lord, greatly is He to be praised. Not, uh, not about us when, we, when it comes right down to it. All right. So through him then, let us continually. Remember in the Old Testament, the fire could not go out on the altar. The fire had to remain lit at all times. They had a continuous offering, evening and morning sacrifices by never letting the fire go out on the altar. They painted a picture for you and for me. We should never let the fire go out on our altar, the altar of our soul. That fire should always be lit. We should always be recognizing that everything we think, say, and do is um, accountable to God. It goes up as a sweet-smelling savor. Or it doesn't. If uh, our thinking, actions, and deeds are not pleasing in God's sight, they need to be. We need to adjust our thinking, adjust our words, adjust our actions accordingly so that we realize that our lives are the living sacrifice. All right, the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. We all can do this, and this is our blessing. Our primary and continual sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise the sacrifice of praise. In fact, you spend all your time praising. It's, uh, it's a marvelous uh, prophylactic. It's a marvelous defense mechanism against grumbling, uh, against uh, mental attitude sins, against occupying with the wrong things. That uh, 
generally speaking, those folks that get their eyes fixed on their problems, get their eyes fixed on themselves, get their uh, uh, get spiritually confused and, and wrapped up in things of mental attitude sin, generally that's not going to happen if you're praising, if you're walking by means of the Spirit, if your attention is set on the things above. And so praise, this is uh, what we should be doing all the time, all day, every day as a praise item. And uh, there might be some things that are not praiseworthy if you receive a, a medical diagnosis that's not pleasant or that's frightening. Uh, something we, we understand that, you know, the doctor says, um, you, you know, here's your diagnosis and, and I don't expect you're going to make it. That's not, you know, you're not going to throw a party and celebrate that, but you're still going to praise. You're going to praise God that in His wisdom He has assigned you a test and His grace is going to bring you through the test. You can praise God for even the bad things, the good things, the bad things, and everything in between. It's a continual sacrifice. As it should have been the reality for Israel in their animal ritual. They had a mental attitude of praise that should have gone with every dead animal. And this is the problem, is that with under legalism and under ritual observance is that believers can confuse the ritual with the reality. And they can engage in the ritual even when there is no reality. And they can think it counts for something. They can be very observant in their religion. And and it happens to this day. There's a lot of churches, a lot of uh, divisions within Christendom where you can show up and you can take the Mass and you can do all the ritual and and get no value out of it whatsoever because it's just empty ritual. You're just going through the motions. You're You're just doing the deed. And there's no heart reality behind any of it. In which case, uh, God is sick of it as far as that goes. And so in Psalm 50, let me get the Bible over here so we can take a look at these references. I think we've seen enough of Leviticus and the dead animals. But in Psalm 50, you'll notice, let me back up just a little bit here, because this is where we have the cattle on the thousand hills. Start with verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. All right, so we know right off the bat, not going to be a happy message, okay? Because God, their God, has a message against them. And he tells them that right at the beginning. I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. He says your ritual obedience is not the problem. That you are bringing the right sacrifices on the right day, at the right time, in the right place. So your external observance, nothing to criticize you for on the external obedience. That's fine. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house nor male goats out of your folds For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. And so sacrifices are not God stealing from you because they're his to begin with. Whatever animals you happen to have, they were God's. He gave them to you. Now you're sacrificing them. You haven't lost anything. And God doesn't need what you're giving him anyway because it's not like he's hungry. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. The world is mine and the fullness thereof. 
This is a fullness application. And I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're going to start paying more attention to those fullness applications. Because the Gentiles had fullness applications. Israel has fullness applications. And the church has fullness applications. Specifically, the dispensation of the fullness of times in Ephesians 1.10. Verse 13 says, Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? He says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. In other words, have a spiritual reality behind the external ritual. That a sacrifice of thanksgiving should be your heart attitude in any animal ritual that you're taking part in. And, uh, and this, is the, this is the key here. In fact, David, King David learned there were circumstances like his repentance from the adultery episode. There was no animal ritual he could have brought. There was no Levitical rescue for, for the murderer and the adulterer that David was. All he could do is, is confess and humble himself and throw himself on God's mercy and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. And so in verse 14 here of Psalm 50 it says exactly that. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. This is why when you and I are making our request known, we're making our request known with thanksgiving. Because it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We're anticipating ahead of time that God already has a handle on this test that we are just now becoming aware of in the unfolding of time. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. The value there is praise and worship for the rescue. Now we stay in the same psalm. We go down a few more verses to verse 23. As we see here. To the wicked God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? You know, they thought that they, that they could, even though they were wicked, that they could name the name of Yahweh and get away with it. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. So look at these wicked doers of wickedness. They, they think that practicing a religion is, is going to mitigate whatever they're doing. But look at what they give approval to, the thieves and the adulterers. They're pleased with the sinners and what they get away with. In fact, they idolize them. It's, it's curious to me what a population group decides to turn into a hero and uh, whether it's worthy of being a hero or not. And, and they make a hero out of different people for different reasons. So are we going to be pleased with the thieves and the, and, and the adulterers? Is that worthy of, uh, of uh, admiration? You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. So you don't confuse his long suffering with the fact that he's not ignoring you. He knows exactly, and he's got a complete catalog, and everything is, is going to be spelled out. There are books with these things on record, and you will see them at the great white throne. This is what the unbeliever can look forward to. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. 
And so I like these verses. I like verse 14, I like verse 23. To me, they speak of the sacrifice of praise. And the English is rendering this as thanksgiving, but it's praise. A lot of times in both Hebrew and Greek, the praise-thanksgiving distinction gets rather fuzzy. It gets very blurred in the things that we're thankful for, the things we're praising God for. The things we're praising God for, the things we're thankful for. And sometimes it's the same vocabulary that, that actually represents both ideas. The, uh, the praising and the thankfulness. I think we could put praise in all these passages just fine and uh, convey the sense of what uh, these verses are doing. Next chapter down, Psalm 51. This is David's confession. This is when Nathan comes to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This is when he's exposed nine months later. He thought that he could, uh, he could cover his tracks. He thought he could get away with it, that no one would know. God knows. He's got the list. He's got it in order. And when Nathan shows up and exposes him with a marvelous parable, the parable of the poor man and the little sheep, and David just bought, he bit that like a fish on a hook and, and spoke his own condemnation. That man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. And, he, and what else could he say? He was, it was case closed at that point. And so he confesses, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. That's all he can do is call upon the God of grace because what he's earned and deserved, he knows, is death. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Last hour we were teaching some distinctions between sin and transgressions and how sin is always against God, but oftentimes there are also offenses against men. Like Uriah was, the, was offended in, in the adultery and then in the murder, but the sin is against God and God alone. God is the only standard of righteousness that, uh, that sin violates. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part. You will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Now there's consequences and when we delay our confession even longer, there's more consequences. Even broken bones David identified different uh, mishaps and consequences whereby God kept trying to wake him up, kept trying to get his attention. And uh, David kept not listening, putting his fingers in his ears and doing the I can't hear you, can't hear you thing. And so the damage just got worse and worse and worse until Nathan arrives and puts an end to it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now that's a verse we don't worry about. In the New Testament we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. David wasn't operating in a church age capacity. In David's operation in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit could come and go freely. And uh, in the case of King Saul the Spirit left for the rest of Saul's life. He never saw the Holy Spirit ever again. And uh, here's David imagining that he's going to endure the same thing that King Saul had to go through. And uh, so he's pleading that would not be the case. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. 
David knows there's a ministry in front of him now. If the God of grace allows him to recover, that there's a ministry opportunity and he can speak the truth and teach and encourage other believers to uh, not follow that path, to avoid those temptations, to not get wrapped up in in the slavery of sin like David did. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You know, the, um, the marvelous thing about it and a lot of the hymns and a lot of the hymns about praising and a lot of the, the scriptures about praising, we're praising God not because of victories but because of failures that God's grace allowed us to recover from. That uh, in the grace of God, He picked us up and put us back on our feet and we've been able to move on. Our testimony is not the the goody tushus we never sinned testimony to this lost and dying world. Our testimony is that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the God of grace provides our redemption. This is our testimony. This is what we sing about, how great our God is in forgiving us from these things. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So even in the Old Testament, even under law, when they were given the animal ritual, when they were given a priesthood that was just filled with external uh, ritual and observances and so forth, even with all of that, they still understood that it was the heart reality that was the real issue. That empty religion was worthless. That, uh, in fact, instead of a sweet-smelling savor, it stinks. And God gets sick of it when, uh, when phonies try to cover their own wickedness with a, with a nod-to-God artificial religiosity. That, uh, that it just stinks. It's not a sweet-smelling savor. And we have the issues here. All right. A sacrifice of praise should have been the reality for Israel and their animal ritual as we've looked at in Psalm 50 and Psalm 51. We can also see Ephesians and Philippians for our church age applications. Ephesians 1, 6. When we celebrate all the great things that God has done, you know, are you going to get all theological in your discussions of of, uh, predestination? Or, not that there's anything wrong with that, but while you're getting all theological in your discussions of predestination, take the opportunity to praise God. Okay? Because yes, verse 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. But then it says, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. So let's praise God for His grace in saving us. Praise God for predestination, election, salvation, everything that comes with that. Down to verse 12. Verse 11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Marvelous study here when you study the plan of God, the will of God, you study the eternal life conference, the design of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world to put their plan into effect. We can discuss that theology and and edify one another in that discussion, but we should also praise God 
for the, the glory of this plan. He works all things after the counsel of His will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. If we're not praising His glory, why did He redeem us? Why did He save us? To the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we're thankful for that. We teach the doctrine. We discuss the nature of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does the baptism of the Holy Spirit do? How does it seal us in Christ? How does it guarantee that we have eternal life and can't lose our salvation? How does it identify us with Jesus and His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension? There are tremendous theological truths that we can study and teach and discuss pertaining to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget to praise Him for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. See, I think all too frequently this phrase, to the praise of His glory, is a throwaway expression that our mind just ignores and, and dismisses. To the praise of His glory. And it, it becomes formulaic, it becomes, um, we, it becomes rote, it becomes uh, uh, forgettable, and it should not be forgettable. It's making a point, and it's making that point again and again and again, to the praise of His glory. And are we going to wait till we get to heaven to start praising Him? We should be praising Him now. Yeah, don't wait for heaven. Got to praise Him now. Say, if you email me this afternoon, I'll send you a link to a song that communicates that. It's a, it's a good gospel tune. All right. To the praise of His glory. So we have Ephesians 1, 6, verse 12, verse 14. We have uh, Philippians 1, 11. His prayer, Paul's prayer for the believers in Philippi. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So a congregation needs to have their agape love abound more and more in epinosis, in full knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Nowadays, of course, if you approve the things that are excellent, then you're, you're a hater and you're divisive and why do you have to be so critical? Why, why are you so judgmental? Well, I'm approving the things that are excellent and the things you're celebrating are not excellent. And I want to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Am I glorifying and praising God today, all day, every day, to the praise of God? When He fills me with the fruit of righteousness, do I praise Him? I should. It should be the unending sacrifice. All day, every day, I'm praising God for the great things He has done. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, remember this? We, it wasn't that long ago that we were in this chapter, actually, and teaching this, this whole description, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, 
whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Worthy of praise. So when we let a day go by without praising God, what are we saying? He's no longer worthy of praise. He's worthy all day, every day. The sin of omission by not praising Him is... uh, is uh, horrible when we stop to think about it. If there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things that are not excellent, don't dwell on them. The things that are not worthy of praise, don't dwell on them. Why do we get occupied? Well, because we're sinners. And this world is designed, Satan has so designed this cosmic system, the cosmos diabolicus, right? You ever heard that term? Um, the, the cosmos diabolicus, the Satan's world system. And it is designed to get our attention on everything but Jesus Christ. Get your eyes on self, eyes on the world, eyes on money, eyes on materialism and success. And boy howdy, is our nation uh, geared towards materialism. No, we want to have our minds dwelling on the things above, the things that are worthy of praise. So that's our primary continual sacrifice Give thanks should be confess. Cross off give thanks and put in confess. Again, Hebrews 13, 15. Give thanks should be confess. Hamalageo. Hamalageo. And this is where we, um, our understanding of 1 John 1, 9 and the confession of sins actually works against us because it's not that kind of confession. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. That confess his name. You might even have it in a footnote there. Literally confess. It's in the footnote of my New American Standard translation. You might have it in yours as a footnote. The verb is homologeo, to confess. Do you confess the name of Christ? That's what praise is. And every chance you get, you're praising Him by confessing His name. We are a, con- we are a confessing faith. We are confessors. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. I think some of this language might be a little uh, you know, archaic. It might be a little, uh, I mean, who pays attention? No one's paid attention since the Westminster Confession, I don't think, to um, you know, the word confession. But we, we, we need to identify it. And the book of Hebrews is a bo- good book to spotlight it. Because Hebrews 3.1 calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. Praise is the fruit of lips that confess his name. And so instead of grumbling over a problem, I'm confessing that Jesus Christ controls history. I'm confessing that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The, uh, the confessions are marvelous praise testimonies. And they serve to resolve a lot of um, issues that would otherwise not get resolved, I guess, if we don't occupy with Christ. Case in point, Jesus Christ being head of the church. And, um, you know, right now my son's on a pulpit committee in Bellingham, Washington, and they're, you know, trying to find the replacement pastor. The the, uh, previous pastor announced his retirement a year ago. He told them last June that he was retiring this June. And guess what? Next week. That's right. Yeah, next Sunday is his final Sunday there. And uh, the pulpit committee has figured out that he means it. And they're, uh, 
they've been getting pretty serious in recent months, but it's hard with the lockdown and all the, they've been candidating remotely and doing things, but anyway. Um, an endeavor like that can um, go terribly wrong if it's not biblical, if it's not Christ-centered, if the people forget that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And if they approach it like a business, like they're uh, talent scouts or headhunters, or they're trying to, they're, uh, they're, if they approach it like a corporate USA approach, whereby they're uh, a board of directors uh, looking for their new CEO, and they're trying to you know, get the best credentials they can for the, for the uh, least amount of money, all right? It's not what it is. Jesus Christ is head of the church, and he's already assigned the next shepherd for that flock. It's been a part of his plan since the foundation of the world. Their, their task is to find the shepherd that Jesus Christ has already assigned, and then submit to the will of Jesus Christ and, and call the man to be their pastor. In any event, confessing the name of Jesus Christ is a great privilege. And as we confess his name and confess his sovereignty over our churches, over our nation, remember Jesus Christ controls history, all judgment's been given to the Son. What a thrill that we have to confess Christ and praise Him so that we're not um, running around like chickens with their head cut off or we're not, um, we're not freaking out over uh, political ups and downs and we're not uh, craving uh, results at a, at a ballot box or we're not, we're not devastated when some uh, asinine statement comes from the Supreme Court. Can I say asinine in church? <laughs> I guess so. I'm even on YouTube. How about that? In any event, we confess His name. Remember Hebrews 3.1? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This ought to be a big, you know, clue that the church is not Israel, Israel is not the church. We have this marvelous confession. Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. Peter made that confession. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This has nothing to do with 1 John 1, 9 and getting back in fellowship when you sin. This has to do with standing before the world and naming the name of Christ. This is, what, this is who we are. This is what we are. And apart from Him, we're nothing. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. We live day by day waiting for a trumpet, and He's faithful. It's a confession of our hope without wavering. 1 Timothy 6, Paul was reminding Timothy of his call to the ministry. I think I typed it wrong. There we go. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is Paul reminding Timothy of his call to ministry and his entrance into the full-time uh, ministry uh, Christian service for Jesus Christ. 
you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This wasn't rebound. This is the good confession. In fact, if you look at the very next verse, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So there's a clue. If Jesus is doing it, it's not 1 John 1, 9. Because he never sinned. There's so much more to the homologeo activity than just being restored to fellowship when you are under conviction of your darkness and, and uh, the, the cleansing procedure to return to walking in the light. Yes, that is a confession application, but it's, by, it's not the only one. In fact, it's not even the most common one. We're seeing these usages here that are more common than the uh, remedial sin procedure. How about 1 John 2.23? Notice I didn't say 1.9, I said 2.23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Our confession is uh, a paterological confession because of the design of Jesus Christ in this age. That gets us into some other areas, so I'll let that go for the moment. But this is, uh, this is our calling. And we should be praising constantly, all day, every day, in every test, in every assignment, everything we do, every thought, word, and deed for the glory of Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glory. All right, verse 16 then. Again, we're going to praise Him all day, every day. We're going to praise Him. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we have the sacrifice of praise. Now we get two more sacrifices. And if our attitude is right, in other words, if we have the praise attitude in verse 15, then we can do these other two in verse 16. Doing good and sharing. Don't try to do good or share if you don't have the praise attitude up front. Verse 15 has to precede verse 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing. It's kind of neat the way he wrote this. It's it's really a repeat of verses 1 and 2 when he had the imperative and then the do not neglect. When he said, let the love of the brethren continue and then do not neglect the love of strangers. Remember that? That's how the chapter started with, uh, you know, let, let Philadelphia continue and do not neglect Philizenia, the, the love of strangers. And so that same um, formula or that same structure happens here with uh, the uh, let the uh, sacrifice of praise continue. Never let that fire go out. The sacrifice of praise to God must continue. The fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And then it says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now we have our biblical sanction for being do-gooders. All right, we want to be do-gooders. We don't want to be legalistic about being do-gooders. And sometimes um, we can uh, maybe in our illustrations and in our discussion over human good and evil, uh, we, we run the risk of mocking 
the uh, legalistic do-gooders, we end up mocking and, uh, and rightfully so, rejecting their uh, filthy rags. The, the garments of righteousness that they were presenting as if they were worth something. And God says, no, all of your righteousness is as a filthy garment. And uh, it's, it's not valued in God's sight. So we want to understand what is the doing of good, what defines that goodness. And it's going to come back to the, the praise and the attitude that we have here in verse 15. That what makes it good is that it's God that's doing it in through us. That's what makes it good. It's not us ourselves trying to do something to please God or to earn something or deserve something because we're still recipients of His grace as saved ones. The same way we were saved is the same way we walk, by grace through faith. And so all the do-gooding that we do is by grace through faith, letting God do the work. He's the one that's at work in us to willing to do of His good pleasure. And we see the applications here. Doing good is also a well-pleasing sacrifice to God, just like praise is. Praise is a, is a soothing aroma. Doing good is a well-pleasing sacrifice. It just so happens that in the sacrifice of doing good, we also accidentally happen to benefit others. You can think of it as a side effect. In a sense, and, and might that be the, the best way to consider it? Right, you watch those, um, you get those uh, pharmaceutical commercials late at night, and they talk about the different, uh, you know, prescriptions that you you should ask your doctor about this, uh, you know, this drug they're pushing, and uh, and they tell you all the great things that drug can do for you, but then they also give you the the side effects, okay, and uh, and usually it's in a real low voice and real fast, and they put the words up in the screen in such small print, who can possibly read those anyway? And, and, you know, possible side effects include, and then they list a lot of stuff. And then, uh, you know, you pay attention to that and you think, wow, <laughs> who wants any of that, you know? Um, but in a sense, the benefit to other people of doing good, do not neglect in doing good and sharing, uh, the people will benefit there are people who, when you're doing good, they will have a benefit of that goodness. When you're sharing, the, the, the folks you're sharing with will receive and share a benefit of that, of that goodness, of that sharing. But really, that's the side effect. The main function of the pharmaceutical is to praise God. The main function of the sacrifice is to be well-pleasing in God's sight. And so let's not uh, forget that when, when it talks about not neglecting doing good and sharing. It's not because, uh, it doesn't say for, by way of explanation, uh, uh, people will like you if you do good things for them. Or No, it says, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. In other words, we're focused on the heavenly. Our attention is on the things above. That we are serving God in our service for other people when we're sharing with brothers and sisters and we're bearing one another's burdens and we're, we're fulfilling the law of Christ and all those things, on a very practical level, yes, we're, we're, we're doing things for us here in this, in this flock, in this local assembly or in our neighborhood or in our <clears throat> wider associations in the world. But the first thing we're doing is we're serving the Lord. 
we're giving ourselves to God first. It's a sweet-smelling savor to God first. And if I can't frame an action as a sacrifice to God, I, I ask myself, why am I even doing this? What is the point in doing this? All right, and so this is the uh, the principle here. Again, I would uh, show you that the the purpose in listing Hebrews thirteen verses one and two there on this slide is to demonstrate the parallel construction that we have here with the command followed by the do not neglect, and uh, that links these things together very uh, in a very tight fashion, so that the praise to God is connected with the do not neglect doing good and sharing. Just like the Philadelphia love was connected to the Philozenia, do not neglect showing the hospitality to strangers. So there's benefit to the people, but the primary focus is on God. Mark 14, 7, I think illustrates this well. Hmm. We need to pay more attention to this. Anyway, um, of course, people will always be critical. Mark 14, Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. They were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignant. And it's curious, what sparks indignation? Remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? And here she's doing a service. She's doing a good thing for the Lord and the disciples are critical. And isn't that interesting? There's always going to be different opinions about what other people are doing and why they're doing it and what they should be doing instead. And, and folks, people are critical. You're not doing enough of this. You're doing too much of that. Why are you doing so much of this? <clears throat> Why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. Well, might have, but it wasn't. Go sell your own perfume and give it to the poor. It's not what this woman wanted to do. And they were scolding her. Isn't that sad? You know, it's curious how so many Christians think they can run everybody else's life. Live your life. Come to your faith convictions. That's what Romans 14 is all about. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. So she has done a sacrifice such as we have in Hebrews 13 of doing good and sharing. A sweet smelling savor which the Father is well pleased. Jesus was pleased. He had personally benefited but the main sacrifice was to God. Then he goes on to say, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you wish you can do good to them but you do not always have me. That's a profound statement. When Jesus said the poor you will have with you always. You know, and I think our culture needs to wake up to this and, and churches need to wake up to this. I, don't, I have no faith that our culture ever will. But our churches ought to in, uh, you know, if, if government thinks they can stamp out poverty, they, uh, they're dedicated to making Jesus a liar. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. 
But then he focuses on the opportunity. While you have opportunity. And this is an occasion, this is two days before Passover. For three and a half years he's been getting ready to go to the cross. Now he's two days away from the cross. You talk about crunch time. (laughs) They're hitting a deadline here and the disciples are clueless. This girl wasn't. She knew what was happening. So you do not always have, but you, you do not always have me. She, what she has done, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done what she could. And this is the thing about grace. If God gives you the opportunity, you just do what you can. Okay? It's all grace anyway. Say, thank you, Father, for the opportunity. And I've done what I can. Say, my ministry here, I've done what I can. All right, this is the opportunity. And we're not big, we're not fancy, but we are what He's graced us with. And we do what we can. Because God's a God of grace and this is what He's asking of us. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. The principle of grace giving, the principle of service. As you have opportunity with a grace perspective, and you do what you can. Anyway, I like that. How about Galatians 6.10? So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Here's another verse that gives us great guidelines for our own application. Say, okay, I want to do these sacrifices. I want to offer up a sacrifice of praise. I want to do good. I want to share. Can I feed every homeless person in Austin? Can I feed every homeless person in Texas? Can I feed... I mean, what is my opportunity? What has been placed in front of me? And do I have a prioritized um, system... Because it says, especially to those who are of the household of faith, do we say that Austin Bible Church is is, uh, target zone number one? And then other Christians uh, beyond Austin Bible Church can be uh, target zone number two? And then, uh, you know, if we have assistance opportunities for, uh, for Lost Pines or Corpus Christi or missionary endeavors and things like that, but then you know, we have further um, degrees of distance there whereby the priority list, you see, you see how this works? All right. Especially those who are the household of faith. But it does include all people, by the way. There's nobody that's excluded. There is nobody that is not eligible for our goodness. And if the opportunity presents itself for our goodness and we recognize this is my open door opportunity, then there you go. That's our opportunity. Second Thessalonians 3.13 You know, it's curious. Uh, this lesson, by the way, I remember when I was in training and, and I was in the parsonage um, had, was having a class with Pastor Ralph was training me and while class was going on, the phone rang. And, and the same Ralph didn't have a private home phone number. The same phone that rang at the church also rang at the parsonage. So he would always answer it. 
and uh, and frequently it's somebody calling a church looking for money, and uh, and I learned a lot because Ralph would talk to these people and ask them. He said, uh, "Do you have a? Are you a, a born again believer in Jesus Christ? And then do you have a local church family? Who's your pastor? Where's your congregation?" And he would tell them, you know, the benefit to being in a church family is that you have brothers and sisters that love you and care for you and provide for you. And, uh, you know, where you end up in a, in, a, in a support structure that you're not just dialing random strangers on the phone asking for help. Say. And he was very gracious about how he would say those things. And, and I learned a lot just listening to him in those occasions. All right, Second Thessalonians uh, 3.13, as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. So here's another guideline to our doing good and sharing is that um, you got to do it more than once and you might get tired of it, but don't, <laughs> okay? Don't grow weary. That it's pretty easy to do good for a little bit, uh, but over the long haul, how much goodness do I have to do? I'm like, Peter, really, Lord, do I have to forgive him seven times? You know, is there a point where I can stop forgiving him? And uh, likewise, Christians with the do-gooding question would ask, well, how, haven't I done enough good? How much, how much more good do I need to do? He says, don't grow weary of doing good. I find that interesting. And then he highlights how um, the problem with the busybodies and the problem with the sluggards is that they, uh, they don't have enough to share and they're not working with their own hands and they're not, um, he says, uh, such persons, here we go, some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. How much goodness can they do? Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Anyway, there's a larger context there in Second Thessalonians 3 that addresses that. How about 1 Timothy 6? 17 through 19. Very practical in the do good imperative. Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but to fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if you, in your goodness decision-making process, if um, if you're trying to uh, balance out your decision about being good based upon uh, what you think you can afford, just uh, stop that. Because God's the one that gave it to you in the first place. And He's got more to give. And maybe He gave it to you so you could be the conduit through which others will be blessed. Richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and the joy of being able to give in this fashion is a ministry. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Notice the, it's the act of generosity that lays up the treasures in heaven. And so the choices to not be generous are choices to not lay up treasure in heaven. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Remember that doing good and sharing must be following the attitude of praise. The heart, the heavenly attitude must precede the earthly expression or the earthly expression is worthless. 
doing good and sharing. Sharing is likewise a fellowship, priestly sacrifice. Fellowship sharing is a priestly sacrifice. Doing good is a sacrifice and fellowship sharing is a sacrifice. Fellowship is so much more than just, um, you know, wolfing down food at a potluck. Okay? It's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not the discussion of po- politics or the weather or sports or uh, coronavirus, things that take up center stage in conversation these days. Uh, no, fellowship is the sharing of everything in the Christian life. Let me wrap up these and we got to... I'm running out of time. Romans 12, 13... We've got a section here in Romans 12 talking about the practical outworking, talking about sacrifice, by the way. How does Romans 12 start? Present yourself a living and holy sacrifice. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We are New Testament believer priests. All day, every day, we present ourselves. It's like you wake up in the morning and say, here I am, Lord, present, ready for duty. You're just reporting for duty every day. And we are the living sacrifice. This is our spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Take in the Word of God on a daily basis to transform your mind. Demonstrate the will of God. Don't be full of yourself. Serve the body. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. These are not just helpful tips for a successful life. This is, these are the mandates for the living sacrifice. Mandates for our priestly service. Anyway, this is part of my evidence for why Paul is not the author of Hebrews because this chapter is Paul's book of Hebrews. And if Paul was the author of Hebrews, he would have ripped off this chapter a whole lot more. But anyway, this is the living sacrifice chapter. I think the author of Hebrews was an associate of Paul's, but not Paul himself. Unhypocritical love, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Those are priestly functions. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. All of these things are uh, priestly functions for the church age. Romans 15, verses 24 through 29. Paul's travel plans, he was hoping once he uh, was able to travel again and he would pass through uh, Rome and then finally get a chance to see Rome. He'd never been there. But when he arrived there, he wanted the Romans to help him get to Spain. And whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Helped on my way is the fellowship sharing activity that the Roman believers were going to have a chance for fellowship sharing to supply Paul's needs to get him to Spain. But really it's a sweet smelling savor before the Lord. Doing good and sharing are priestly sacrifices. Verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. 
For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. That contribution is a koinonia, a fellowship sharing, which means it's a sacrifice to God that he's well pleased. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they're indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. This is what the sharing really is. And you know, in the early church, they shared all things, they held all things in common. And the liberals today try to point to that and say, see, Christian communism, that's what we're commanded to do. Failing to realize that the sharing and having all things in common is so much more than just the, the, uh, the temporal life issues. That's secondary. That's secondary. 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. We taught these. Uh, book studies are available. Again, it's as you have opportunity. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. You see the spiritual priorities that were at work there? For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. This is the beauty of grace. This is free will. This is, this is a free will sacrifice of, of believer priests that are glorifying God in heaven and also, side effect, benefiting brothers and sisters on earth. And it's not communism or forced socialism taxation or, or uh, 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 slavery to the state. It's free will grace giving. Begging us with much urging for the favor Begging us, please let me give. Favor of fellowship sharing, participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. It starts with our attitude towards God. We're giving first of all to God before we ever give anything to man. Before you give one nickel in the grace box back there, before you give anything to Austin Bible Church, understand you're giving to the Lord. We have a spiritual priesthood that stands before God Himself. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 9, 12-14. The ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that's the least of it. That's the side effect. Yeah, the, it, yeah, sure, it's supplying the needs of the saints. But it is also overflowing. Here's what it's really doing. Here's the bigger issue. Overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. You realize there's a hallelujah chorus? There's a praise chorus? Hundreds of voices? And not just one person giving thanks, but the multiplication of this as we share in the ministry. Many thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession, there's that word, to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. See, this is what real liberalism is. The generosity and grace appreciative for the ministry of God. 
And while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And so is it more blessed to give than to receive? Of course it is. Think about the churches in Macedonia and what they gave and think about all the prayers coming back in support of them. I'm going to close here, but I tell you, this is, <clears throat> this is very humbling and this is very much, um, we experience this when we have brothers and sisters in Cameroon say they're praying for us. You know how much that means to me? Or these pastors in Ukraine that used to be students and now they're pastors and, and uh, they're praying for us? Wow. Thank you. Pray harder. <laughs> but no, thank you. And uh, where would we be without all those prayers? See, Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for truth. And I thank you that our sacrifices are so simple and so universal and so um, possible to perform today, tomorrow, every day. We don't have to wait for a, the Day of Atonement to come up. We don't have to kill anything or It's simple, Father. We enter within the veil and we can be there at a moment's notice. Thank you, Father. We praise you for all that you do and continue to do. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, our closing hymn is the